There's a story about a young rabbi who ran into a serious problem in his new congregation. During the Friday service, half the congregation at the synagogue stood for the prayers and half remained seated. And each side shouted at the other, insisting that theirs was the true tradition of that particular synagogue. We're doing it right. No, no, we're doing it right. And nothing the rabbi said, he was this new young rabbi, or did, solve the impasse at all. They were still just at each other's throats. And finally, in desperation, the young rabbi sought out the synagogue's 99-year-old founder. He was still alive, and he, had, he was the founding rabbi of that synagogue. So he met the old rabbi in the nursing home where he was living, and he, he poured out his troubles to him. And he said, so tell me, was it the, tr- the tradition for the congregation to stand during the prayers? No, no, the old rabbi said. Ah, he said, uh, so then it was a tra- tradition to sit during the prayers. No, no, answered the old rabbi. Well, the young rabbi responded, he goes, what we have now is complete chaos. Half the congregation stands and shouts, and the other half sits and screams. And the old rabbi said, "Uh uh-huh, that was the tradition. (laughs) You know, if you've been around church, and I mean any church for very long at all, whether as the minister or an elder or a teacher or, you know, just uh, someone who's fairly involved using your your gifts in stewardship as a member of the church in some capacity, You'll understand the humor and the, and the truth in that story. You don't have to be a, a pastor, preacher, minister to know that sometimes church is a frustrating, messy, and, and even a heartbreaking thing. I've heard many stories firsthand of, of, of treachery and manipulation and dishonesty and, and bias and name-calling and, and even stalking, you know, and many other examples of downright un-Jesus-like behavior within the church. And what's worse, some of those stories that I've heard paint people that I know and love uh, in, in less than ideal light. And, you know, if we had time and I was in the inclination, I could have some stories for you that would curl your hair. And naturally, the fact that the church is full of sinners, and I mean any congregation, any denomination or tradition, even our little non-denominational domination, and even this very little congregation here, The fact that the church is full of sinners sours many on the whole idea of groups of believers coming together in a building or in someone's home or or, or a storefront or any place else and calling themselves a church. Many people use this as an excuse, and they say, well, why would I want to to be part of a church? There's nothing but hypocrites. All of them in, in a church is chock full of them. And there's no denying that. But in my experience... People who use that argument will refuse to realize that declining to be a part of a church, a congregation, is really, in the end, just as hypocritical as is the failure of Christians to always live up to our ideals as followers of Jesus Christ. However, I've also run into a a few more thoughtful critics of the church over the years. Once, it seems like it was only two or three years ago, it was probably four or five years ago, a man came into the building. He was doing some business with his congregation. He worked for the company at the time. He worked for the company that services our uh, fire extinguishers on an annual basis. And he came in and, and uh, you know, he did his, he, he checked them all and took, took them out that need to be recharged and gave us a loaner and everything like that and got the information for me to leave the bill in Rob's box there in the office and stuff. And, and we got to visiting. And after a bit, he asked if I had a little time to talk. You know, he was being courteous of my time. And and I said, sure. And so he sat in my office, and I didn't know him from Adam. I had only met him that day. But he explained 
his struggles with the church, not this congregation, but pretty much every congregation that he'd ever been in a position to observe or, or be a part of. And he seemed like an earnest, likable fellow uh, and, and a follower of Jesus Christ, but he spoke of the, the flakiness of so many Christians, you know, that you can't count on them to do what they say they'll do. Well, yeah, that's true. He spoke about the dishonesty that he's seen in many believers and even of uh, manipulative, manipulative pastors and elders. I know that's a shock to some of you, but uh, he spoke about that. He talked about legalistic tendencies and, and control issues that he'd experienced and about how he'd known many people to try and to, to live a disciplined life of faith, and yet real progress seemed so elusive to them. And his observation was that you'll find almost as much selfishness and self-centeredness and, and indifference and impatience and, and cruelty and insensitivity and pettiness inside the church as, as you do outside of, of one. And maybe I'm making it sound like he was just kind of coming in and unloading and whining on, on me, but that really wasn't what was going on. For some reason, he apparently thought that I was someone who could he could have an honest discussion with about this issue, maybe because I didn't know anything about his life or his experience. And as we talked, on one level, I found myself, you know, agreeing with him. I've seen examples of selfishness and insensitivity and immaturity and cruelty in a church, and that's just in myself, you know. And, and yet, that's, that's not funny. Come on now. And yet I also found myself instinctively defending the whole institution of the church, not just this congregation or even our tradition, but the, the whole idea of church. Christians all over the world have come together in groups to be followers of Jesus Christ and mutually support each other in that endeavor. Yes, we are highly imperfect in thought, in word, and practice. Yes, we sometimes drive each other more than a little bit crazy. And yes, sometimes we are meaner to each other than we are to people we don't call brothers and sisters in Christ. But the idea of church is not just some man or woman's idea of how we should function as together as followers of Jesus Christ, but it is God's plan for our survival in a world that is very antagonistic to the teachings of Jesus. Church is serious business as far as God is concerned. And all you have to do is look and see what it's called in the Bible to, to see that this is reiterated time and again. Many times in the New Testament, the church is called a body. Specifically, it is called the body of Christ. Paul was big on this image. In 1 Corinthians 12, 27, Paul writes, All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. There, uh, this is just one of maybe eight or ten references in Paul's writings. Ephesians 5, 23 is another good one. Paul writes, Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, when we talk about this, we preachers usually like to emphasize one of the points that Paul does emphasize there, and that is that just as a human body has different parts that need to work together to make the whole effective, so does the church. We point out that we're obviously not the same, you know, any of us from each other. We have different abilities and talents and temperaments, you name it. There's all sorts of differences, even within a small group just right here. So not everybody has to be the same or do the same thing to be useful and necessary in the church, which is the body of Christ. And yet there's another truth in this church equals Jesus' body metaphor that we often overlook. How do, how do any of us get anything done? 
You know, some, I'm not talking about you. It's like, oh, you never get anything done. How do any of us accomplish anything? We use our bodies, right? We use our, our brains. Hopefully we start there. Our eyes, our, our mouths, our, our, our legs, our hands, our fingers, everything like that. Even the parts of the body we are generally unaware of. We use our liver all the time, and yet I never wasted any time thinking about my liver, you know. Uh, but so if that's the, uh, the, what happens, we ask the, that kind of begs the question, how does Jesus get things done in this world? Certainly God can, and I believe he does sometimes, you know, reach down and interact directly with our world. But I think that primarily Jesus uses his body to get things done, and that is us. Last Saturday, uh, you know, most of you know we had this uh, big garage sale, moving sale at our house. And uh, some of you here, bless you, came and, and bought some of our junk from us, and that's... Uh, I mean, our, our treasures, you, you took that. So, uh, Gene, I hope you enjoy all that stuff. And, uh, and, and, and that was great. But people came in that didn't know us. Um, uh, and they said, and we had put, I put it in a paper. We put it in a paper that we were having a moving sale. Uh, where are you moving? And so they come in and say, oh, you're moving. I saw it in the paper. Yeah. Where are you moving to? And we'd say, Pam or I would say, well, Cambodia. And people, <laughs> Cambodia? Now, is that a country? You know, yeah, but, uh, and they'd say, well, what are you going to do there? What, why are you going to Cambodia? And so we would tell them, you know, we're going to go and we're going to be a, a volunteer. It's a volunteer position as a staff pastors with this organization that fights child sex trafficking, Agape International Missions. And Pam made the observation, and she was usually inside, and I was usually out the garage a good chunk of the day. But, and it was, this was true in my experience, too, that when people we didn't know or didn't know our story came and asked us, and we answered with this way, when she pointed out that nearly every time that we said we were going to work with an organization that is fighting child sex trafficking, people said, so is that a, a religious or a Christian organization? Or they said, so you're going to be missionaries then? And nobody ever said, so you're going to go work with a, a secular humanitarian altruistic organization. You're going to go over there and work with the Peace Corps. You're going to go over there and work with the UN. No, they automatically went right to, so you're going to be missionary. So this is a religious, this is a Christian organization. Yeah. See, if we're supposed to be Jesus' body, then it follows, and I will quote the Swipok Church, the Swipok Church's pastor uh, in, in Penang, outside of Phnom Penh there, Pastor Shanta's words from the movie The Pink Room, if we're supposed to be Jesus' body, then it follows that, as he said, we do like Jesus do. And I would remind you that you don't have to go to Cambodia to do that. Even with all the churches that exist here in the Newport and Toledo area, there is still a great need for this portion of Jesus' body to do like Jesus do right here and right now. Now, another thing the church is likened to in the Bible is Jesus' bride. And this image is used more than once in, in, in the book of Revelation, but Paul also uses this image in Ephesians 5.31. He says, As the Scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. And Paul uses this in his teaching about marriage. Specifically, he's pointing out that Jesus died Jesus died for his wife, for the church, so we husbands should follow that level of love for our wives. However, I want us to think a, a little bit about another implication of this image of the church as Jesus' bride, the church as Jesus' wife. 
fellow named Kevin Emmert made a good point in uh, Leadership Journal just last summer. He said, imagine this scenario. A man invites a friend into his home for dinner. They enjoy a delicious meal that the man's wife has graciously offered to make. The man and his friend casually uh, catch up on life, but then halfway through the meal, the, the invited guest starts to do something unbelievable. He starts listing things that his friend's wife could have done better. The chicken was way too tough, he says. You should have marinated it longer. And the broccoli is overcooked, mushy, and bland. My 12-year-old daughter could cook a better meal. And you should really do something else with your hair. And then he starts to criticize her character, even ridicule her. I'm guessing his visit would be cut short. And the guest would probably get sent away with a few choice words. Even if he were right about certain things, the typical husband simply would not tolerate someone openly and caustically criticizing his wife. He loves her. And for a husband, it leads to, that leads to accepting and honoring his wife despite her quirks and shortcomings. Unfortunately, we tolerate this mean-spirited criticism all the time when it is directed at the church. If we're not careful, it's easy for us to look at the church and her leaders and say, the church should have done blank, or I wish they hadn't blank. You fill in the blanks. You know, the most tolerant guys I know will get upset with you real quickly if you start bad-mouthing your wives. And that's the way it should be. Well, the next time you're fed up with someone in the church, or maybe a group of someone's in the church, and you are tempted to bad-mouth the whole institution, please remember who you're talking about. You're talking about Jesus' bride, not just any old group of people. Now, of course, the Bible also says the church is like God's family. At least a half a dozen times, terms like the God's family and a household of God are used to describe the assembly of believers, also known as the church. Paul was very clear in Ephesians 2 where he was talking about how all sorts of people have now come together under the auspices of Jesus. He says, you are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Now, what do we think of when someone is family to us? That's where we go first when we need help, right? That's who we loan money to or give money to when we know we shouldn't. Well, he's family. I got to give him what I have. You do for family. Do we also enjoy spending time with our family? Yes, we do, but not always. Some of you, maybe all of us, have family members that drive us a little bit crazy with their meddling, their nosiness, their their demanding attitudes, and yet we love them dearly. You might have a family member that you absolutely dread seeing at Thanksgiving, but you know, if they need something or if they end up in a hospital, you're going to travel halfway across the country to go see them. And when one of them dies, you are heartbroken, even if sometimes you were glad to see them leave at the end of a visit at Thanksgiving or Christmas, right? Well, that's exactly the way it is in the church, in God's family. If you come to church, you come to the group of believers, the assembly, any church, and you expect to to always get along with everyone, to never have to forgive or ask for forgiveness, to, to to not be misunderstood or to not have people occasionally get on your nerves, if that is your expectation, well, Bob Russell has said, if you find the perfect church, don't you dare join it because it won't be perfect anymore. Maybe you probably, you, most of you probably remember that movie from, I was just thinking it was a few years ago, I looked it up, it was like 12 years ago, uh, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, right? You remember that movie? It's, uh, of course, a romantic comedy about culture, family, and acceptance. Nia Vardalos played uh, Tula Por- Portokalos, the awkward middle child of a proud Greek family. 
Her father, Gus, often embarrasses her because he's always lecturing people about Greek history. Give me a word, any word. I'll show you it's Greek, you know. And Tula has ambitions to go to college to find a good job and not work in a family restaurant and uh, dancing Zorba's restaurant there. And her father, on the other hand, he just wants her to marry a nice Greek boy and give him nice Greek grandchildren. So Tula meets Ian Miller, played by John Corbett. And he's this long-haired English teacher who comes to from a reserved, very proper, waspy family. And they fall in love, they begin to, and things get complicated, and they have a secret courtship and everything. And her eventually, family eventually finds out, and her father is livid that she's dating a non-Greek man. Why does she do this to me, you know? And a couple decides to marry, and Tula's father, Gus, is devastated. She's marrying outside of her heritage. And he is against the wedding from the very beginning. He simply just does not understand the Miller's way of life. But over time, he begins to realize how important Ian is to his daughter and how in love they are. And and seeking a way to reconcile their differences, he turns to the Greek language. At the wedding reception, he gives the following speech in in his accented and somewhat broken English. Welcome to the Portocalos family and welcome to the Miller family. I was thinking last night, the night before my daughter is going to marry Ian Miller, that, you know, the root of the word Miller is a Greek word. Miller comes from the Greek word Milo, which means apple. So there you go. As many of you know, our name, Portokalos, comes from the Greek word portokali, which means orange. So here tonight, we have apples and oranges. We are all different, but in the end, we, we all fruit. The church is God's family. And quite often, that does mean we're like apples and oranges thrown together. And I hope I don't offend anyone, but, you know, that makes us God's fruit, as it were, all together here. Now, finally, I want to point out one more metaphor for the church that you find in the Bible. And that's a temple, you know, the the dwelling place of the divine, a, a place of worship, and specifically a place of sacrifice. Again, we look to Ephesians 2, where Paul writes in verse 20, Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and a cornerstone is Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. And the Apostle Peter writes that we are living stones, continuing that thing, saying we're built into a, fashioned into a spiritual house. You know, I'm in the office alone here some of the time, just me, and I answer the phone. Or if the secretary is off talking to the youth minister and nobody's minding the phone, I've got to answer the phone. <clears throat> I almost always... Uh, don't, don't look at me like it never happens, Heidi. <laughs> yeah, well, somebody has to take care of business. Thank you. Well, I almost always answer the phone, uh, First Christian Church, you know, and our interim minister, your interim minister, has thought it was just hilarious more than once to say to me in response, is this really the church? Am I speaking to the church? And it's kind of a bit of a joke between us, but I think once I, on the caller ID, I saw it was Gene calling, so I answered, Offices of the First Christian Church in Newport, this is the Reverend speaking, how may I help you? <clears throat> we joke, we give each other a hard time, but his point is valid. This is not the church. This building is not God's house. It's just a building. We are the church. We are the temple. 
And this is important, an important distinction to keep in mind and remember because we can easily get to thinking that the specialness is, is here within these walls. You walk through that door and that's when you start minding your language and keeping your attitude pure and everything like that. And if this building kind of functions as a temple to us, then, then we think that what we do here is our primary religious function. Well, that's, that's not right. The people are the church. The people are the temple. We are God's house. Our houses that we live in are God's house. What we do, wherever we go, wherever we are, that can be worship, that can be sacrifice, that can be what happens at a temple if we just do it for the glory of God. The specialness, the magic, the secret sauce of the church is in the fact that it's, it's like soil and green. It's made of people. Not everyone's seen that movie. Some of you younger people need to brush up on that. If we don't put people first in everything, then we're going to end up doing it wrong. There's just no way to avoid that. Now, I would never claim that this is a perfect church or that I have been the perfect preacher, pastor, minister for these almost 15 years. Over the years, I've had my feelings hurt. I've been offended and maybe even mistreated a time or two. And I know that I have hurt the feelings of others on occasion and that I have done and said things that I have needed to repent of and ask for forgiveness for. And it's almost always been forthcoming. But the truth is, and this is not a criticism, it's just an observation. And I think my friend Glenn Small could say the same thing at the Baptist church where he's preaching probably right this very moment. The truth is, though, we are a mess We're not as unified as we'd like to be. We're not as loving as we want to be. We're not as organized as we sometimes need to be. And so on and so forth. If you start listing all the things we are not or or we're failing, that could be a pretty long list. But today, my last Sunday as pastor, I can honestly say that I'm going to miss this mess. That is the First Christian Church of Newport. And Pam and I pray good things for you in the future. That's all.